Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, the podcast series where I get an opportunity to sit down at my kitchen table with very interesting people to have a good lengthy chat. And today's guest is the former politician, former stockbroker and still journalist and indeed author, Shane Ross. Shane has had a really storied career from his time in stockbroking before he moved from that into journalism, while also maintaining a career as a senator at representing Trinity College. But in 2011, he got elected to Doyle Aaron, and in 2016, he became a government minister, serving as Minister for Transport from 2016 to 2020. Since leaving office, he has returned to journalism and has now just produced a book, an unauthorised biography of Mary Lou MacDonald, the Sinn Féin leader who could well be the next Taoiseach of this country after Leo Varadkar, assuming all goes well in the transition from Michal Martin to Leo Varadkar in December, as planned by this current government. But come the next election, it could be Mary Lou MacDonald's turn, which makes her a very interesting and fascinating figure. So I sat down with Shane Ross on my kitchen table last week to talk about his biography of Mary Lou MacDonald and also to talk about certain other issues in his career, his time as a minister, and indeed his friendship with Eamon Dunphy, which has gone through a rocky patch in recent years. I hope you enjoy this edition of Magnified. You'll never guess who I bumped into on Saturday afternoon. I know, I won't. Oh, tell me. Mary Lou MacDonald. Ah, no. She's, she's in the country, is she? Well, yeah. she was yeah. at the Ireland's Future event, which ah, I yes. went to as well. Yeah. So I was briefly chatting to her beforehand. So I asked her, I said, have you seen the book yet? Yeah. And she said, no, she hadn't. Mm. And uh, I also asked her, had she done an interview for the book? And she said, no, absolutely not. And uh, she then made a comment to me that the book was too soon. And before I got the opportunity to ask her what she meant by that, Mm. somebody else sort of came along and sort of whisked her away. So I don't know what she meant by too soon. So what do you think she might have meant? Is it that you should have waited until she was Taoiseach? Yeah. (laughs) Well... I met her before I wrote the book and I talked to her about it. And uh, when she came back, she said the same to me, actually. She said, I, I think it's premature. Yeah. And uh, she said, you know, she went, went away for a week and she came back and then it came back. And that was a kind of line I was getting for the first week or two. It was premature. What does she mean? I don't think she wants it, it to be written uh, for various reasons. And I think she felt maybe that it was more appropriate, and I think other people did too, that it was written about someone, yeah, who was Tishik and had something under their belt. Because cause Mary Lou's, one of the interesting things about Mary Lou is she's never really been in a position of, of power or authority of any sort. She's been in opposition. She's been uh, maybe a very effective leader of the opposition, but she's been in opposition for the last few years. She was in opposition before that. She was on the PAC, which is a, really a, a position which is critical of government and uh, civil service. She's been in the European Parliament, which is also really an opposition position. So she's never, she's got no record of doing things, of administering anything. <clears throat> and I suspect she would prefer that she'd had that opportunity before a book was written about her career. But her, her career, you know, is... So is, does that mean she's making the assumption and that you agree with the assumption that she is definitely going to be Taoiseach? Uh, she, I think, has a good chance. A very good chance. Uh, I know and, she has a very good chance. Yeah. I just it, The assumption, though, is that it will definitely happen. That seems to be she's making. And you agree with that? No, I wouldn't assume anything. Absolutely not. But I think she's favourite and hot favourite. 
to be to be the next issue. Just look at the polls. I mean, they were taken yesterday, thirty-seven percent. Uh, the Sinn Fein there, so she must be hot favourite to do that. Uh, and I think she would prefer to get there before the biography was written. And I can see why, because uh, uh, biographies of this sort are, are quite penetrating. They look into quite a lot, of, a lot of detail, which wouldn't come up in the in the normal course of politics. And it's it's more normal. Yeah, she's right in that sense. It's more normal for biographies to be written after someone's been in a position of power than, than before they're in it. Well, then means you get the second edition and the additional yeah, royalties right. for the reason. You do, you do. Uh, uh, well, that's right. I say this in the book. I say, you know, this is maybe only the first chapter, uh, you know, in, 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 in a volume because maybe she's going to be tissued uh, and have a lot more. To- she did also say to me, in fairness, I said, you get on well with Shane, don't you? And she said, oh, yeah. And it was immediate and genuine as far as I was concerned. You do actually have a good relationship, even though she did also say that she believed from what she'd heard that some of the stories you had in it were far-fetched and not entirely accurate. (laughs) So she would say that, wouldn't she? Yeah, I like her. And and one of the striking things about her is, and I've always had a very good relationship with her, yeah. Um, One of the striking things about about her is, yeah, that most people like her. And uh, a lot of people have, I think, similar feelings to me that, that, that it was kind of against my better instincts when I met her first. I think uh, I, I didn't really want to like her uh, because, because I felt, you know, Sinn Féin was, was, was so abhorrent in, in some of the things it had done and, and the IRA had done that, that, that it made, li- made me think about it when, when you came across someone who's, who's so pleasant and so civilised and, and clever and charming and maybe well thought out, you think, this isn't what I expected. And it's a lot of people's reaction to Mary Lou has always been the same. She's a very unlikely shinner. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, 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 I think that uh, the good relationship is, is there. I think the stories, I don't think any of the stories are far-fetched, but um, if she talked to me, it would have helped to spike those because I had a list of questions for her which she didn't want to answer. But that's, that's her prerogative, of course. You say an unlikely Shinner. Why do you say that? And did you find out in the course of your research why it is she did become one? Why did she, she become a Shinner? Um, first of all, she's unlike Shinner, I suppose, because we all kind of stereotype poli- politicians probably wrongly uh, into, into certain categories and bracket them. She's not like Shinner because she, she comes from... Uh, Area. She comes from an area very close to here. Actually, she comes. She's 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 kind of middle class, uh, very well educated, privileged education in that in that sense, uh, and that's not something you associate certainly with the time that she came into Sinn Fein, which was you're talking about the turn of the century. Um, you associate with Sinn Fein people at all. She's also South Dublin. She's South Dublin, Ratgar, and most missioners at that time, the leadership came from Belfast. So that was a very unlikely fit. At the time, uh, and that's that's why I say she's unlike, unlikely. She, you know, she didn't start off in Sinn Fein, by the way. She she was in Finnafall before that, um, and that would seem like a much more natural home for her because her parents were different sort of Finnafall people, uh, and that was where she might naturally be thought to belong. But just come back there to her upbringing, because you talk about Notre Dame private school living in Ratgar, but actually the detail in the book is very very striking. Is that despite living in the area where wealth is very much present. Her own family background was far from wealthy. And in fact, even the house that she lived in, it was actually a flat within a much bigger house. Yeah, I don't know how big the flat was. It might have been a very large flat, but, but it, was, it, it was definitely, they were tenants 
in a house which was divided. Uh, and, the, and the story, of course, because I was, I was a TD for that area and, and people talked about Mary Lou and her parents a lot in the, in the area because it was, it, was in, it was in my constituency. And the story was, was always about, ah, the Mary, lived, she, Mary Lou lived there. They lived in this large house out there and they were really, they, they had plenty of money and all that sort of, that sort of thing. In fact, they were, they were tenants, they were paying rent and sometimes they didn't pay the rent or the, the father didn't, wasn't able to pay the rent. Uh, and so, the, so there was a kind of contradiction there because she was going to this private school, Notre Dame, which is just down the road from the house, living in this very large, living in this very large house, but not living, not really as well off as people people say. But she was, you know, she was getting a private education, as were uh, some of her siblings as well. So there was a decision made in the family that if there was any money, it was to go on education. But then, how did she transfer to being? a true-blooded Sinn Féin member who believes very strongly, and we'll get to this in a little while, in a united Ireland. But how did she end up becoming a committed member of the party? Well, there's, 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 still, a, there's still a kind of shadow around that. She herself says that she, <clears throat> she became a Republican, really uh, not so much from her, for, from her background, which, which is obviously Republican, or Fianna Fáil anyway, because she was very struck, she says, and this is something which some people are very sceptical about. She said she was very moved by the hunger strikes, which happened in 1981, and she was only 12. Uh, uh, that, she had a, that she had a Republican background, which included her grandmother, who was very Republican. She draws on the fact that uh, she, she was, um, that she had a great uncle who was shot, executed in the Civil War, which is, abs- which is absolutely true. And then she moved to Vinfall. That was be seemed to be the natural background for someone of that, you know, natural route for someone of that background with a, with a, with Republican beliefs. Um, what happened when she moved into Vinfall was undoubtedly that she was on the Republican wing, uh, and she in fact made quite a nuisance of herself uh, in Vinfall. That all the people I talked to in Vinfall say yes, she was she was Republican. She was really a bit too Republican for them. She was kind of taking them on that wing and saying you're not Republican enough. And then she moved. Uh, then she moved from Fianna Fáil into the Irish National Congress. She met a woman called Nora Comiskey, who's a fascinating woman. Uh, uh, that was through her husband, Martin Lanigan, uh, who was a very strong Fianna Fáil Republican who was leading groups like the anti-extradition groups and, you know, free Desi Ellis and that sort of, that sort of area she was involved in. Always a thorn in the side of Fianna Fáil. She joined forces with her, really. She was her protégé. And she went with Nora Kamersky, or under her, at least under her, under her kind of guidance, who she called her shepherd, who was an older woman, uh, into the Irish National Congress, which was a, a Republican umbrella group, which, which embraced members of Fianna Fáil and members of Sinn Féin and others who weren't members of any party. And then she transferred from there around the time of 2000, the date being in dispute because different stories keep emerging. It's all a bit bit dark there. Uh, and then she transferred into Sinn Féin. What I don't know still is how she, who she met. She said, oh, I met some of the lads in the INC and I talked to them about it. She, who she met there, who actually brought her into Sinn Féin. But I think she was encouraged to go into Sinn Féin by Nora Gomeski, who she called her shepherd, uh, because she was very Republican at that stage, by that stage. But the mystery here is that... What happened between the time of the hunger strike, which apparently was what she calls a Damascus moment, when she was 12, 
And when she was about 28, uh, when she then joined uh, Fianna Fáil and then moved rapidly to the Irish National Congress and Sinn Féin. She, there was no indication, and this is, this is one of the, she's called an enigma often, there was no indication of any political commitment during that period of time. And at that time, she was in Trinity College Dublin, where there was Sinn Féin common, there was a Fianna Fáil common. Nothing at all of that sort happened at all. So she wasn't interested in politics at all until about the age of 28 when she got back in, when she got into it. Okay, let's take a step back and about the actual publication of the book, because after the extracts appeared in the Sunday Independent, I don't know, do you follow social media on situations like that? Sometimes. Because (laughs) there were lots of people who had enormous criticisms of what was covered, and we'll get to some of what was covered in a moment, but even the appropriateness of Oh, well, if Shane Ross is doing it, this is an establishment hatchet job. And is that what you're at? Are you sort of a, an agent here who is trying to undermine Mary Lou Macdonald's chances of becoming Taoiseach? Not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, I like her and I wouldn't be in the, in the, in the, in the, in the group of those who, who fear her or feel that she's got some sinister intent or anything like that. No, no, no. I just thought she was fascinating. Uh, and probably the most interesting person in Irish politics at the moment, and albeit a member of the opposition, but that makes her more interesting because she's got this, uh, she's got this all Ireland dimension. You know, she's the most powerful politician in some ways in Ireland. Uh, and but I wanted to know about her background. I, I kind of said, how did this happen? You know, she, I was struck by. It. I thought that was that was interesting, and I didn't know anything about it, so I decided to look at it. Now, the fact that she didn't want to cooperate, didn't cooperate. Uh, with it meant that I had to kind of find out. Uh, it was a different... Uh, what I asked her to do was to to introduce me to members of her family so that I could find out about her childhood. And I said, would you, would you, you know, would you introduce to my mother and all that, uh, your, your mother and, and your sisters and, 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 and brothers? And she kind of kept... She, she said she'd come back and then, then the, those doors were not closed completely, to be fair to her. She said, I'm not going to cl- stop you talking to anyone, but I'm not going to introduce you. I'm not going to help you with this book at all. And then I start to find out things in, in a different way. I mean, I called to people's houses and that sort of thing. And I found out things probably which she didn't want me to know. Um, but, you know, they weren't lethal. They weren't, didn't make her into a bad person anyway. In fact, they improved her in some ways about her family. And, and then I say, OK, do we print this? Yes, we do. Of course we print it. And it was, it was all relevant. So there was no attempt to undermine her, but there was certainly... Facts which came to my attention, which I wanted to print. Did any members of her family cooperate? Yes. Can you tell us which ones? No. Sorry. No, no. I mean, obviously well, that's not. That's no. fine. I understand. Um, I've written biographies. I know how these things yeah. work. I am fascinated by the level of detail that you have about her estranged father. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it does come to mind... The detail is so extraordinary. Yeah. Did you have access to some sort of intelligence files, either from the Irish government or the British <laughs> government, no. with all of the details of Mary Lou Macdonald's background? No, you know, I, I, I know on social media they said last night, I was looking at it, of course I'd be, I'd be a liar if I said I wasn't looking at it, I was. Yeah. I, I saw it last night and they were saying this is a terrible invasion of privacy uh, and that, you know, that I'd infringed his rights and this, this, this sort of stuff wasn't to come out in the public. It shouldn't come out in the public arena. The extraordinary thing about a father who is very, very interesting and wild, and, you know, there are wild stories about his escapades in the book and, and things you wouldn't expect, and, they, you know, the, there are escapades in court and 
all sorts things of which are on the public record yeah, because of the, the fact p- they were in court. That's the point. The or nearly all the stuff that that I printed about her father. And there's a half a chapter, and he could have you know he could have read, read a book about him. He's he's a character of extraordinary dimensions. Were in McGill magazine, but they didn't know that they had it there. It was McGill, nineteen eighty five, was a great source of what happened to her dad, and that was because he went to them in nineteen eighty five, and it's in there. I found it right. He went to them. He told them his story of his life and how dreadful it had been, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the excitement. And, the, and he had a pretty tough time, a very tough time indeed. And he's you know, extraordinarily badly treated by a rogue solicitor who correct. was a prominent Fianna Fáil member. Absolutely correct. And and that, but that was there on the record and. It was there in McGill. It's sitting there. But nobody knew, of course, and knew until I found out, that was actually Mary Lou McDonald's dad. That was what was so extraordinary. And, and it was a great discovery. Sorry, as a writer, you must have been absolutely thrilled to oh, discover I couldn't this. Believe it. Couldn't uh, believe your luck. Yeah. I mean, I just found out this guy, Paddy McDonald, was her dad. And it was quite obvious from the, reading the story because he talked about his daughter and, and, and he talked about his, his wife and where he lived and all that and what had gone wrong for him. So... Are you telling me I shouldn't have printed that one? It's already in print. I mean, it was crazy. And then there was other stuff. He got into quite a lot of trouble. There was, there was. There's a a very good story there about him being locked up in the car car, car pound. Uh, but that was on the front page of the Irish Independent, all right. But no one knew it was her father. You see, you see what I mean? So it's it's it it it. I can't see that that can be an invasion of privacy, to be honest, because it was all there. And and then he was involved in a in a couple of really good. Stories, not to his credit, but good stories in in that, in this area and around the Russian embassy. And I won't tell you them because they're in the book, but they're very, very, very uh, interesting to read about. But they were both nearly nearly all of them were actually in print. That's how I found them, but just by searching the archives. And there they were in print in the Irish Times or the Irish Independent. It, is it an invasion of her privacy to ask if she has a relationship with him now? Um. I didn't go to the, into that um, because I didn't talk to her uh, and I didn't talk to him. Uh, so I tried to make contact with him, but he, he obviously didn't want to respond to it. Um, is it, I don't, I, I don't, it would be interesting to know if she has a relationship with it, with it now. I'm not sure that it's terribly important at this stage, no, but it's, it would be interesting. In, it would be interesting given that even yeah. her mother was there at the Ireland's Future event last Saturday to hear her give her speech. Yes. And she told me, Quite proudly, all oh, my mother's here in the audience. Yes, that's right. She brings. It's a very. It is very interesting. I mean, and it tells you a lot about her character that she survived the kind of episodes in the book. You know, she talked quite openly from time to time, which she's forced to, about the fact that their parents are separated, uh, and she talks about it. And she talks to her mother pretty openly about her mother very openly, um, because she's very proud of her mother and she's very close to her mother. It's quite obvious. Her mother's very proud of her, but she she doesn't talk about her father at all, or she avoids it as much as possible. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. But what it, the, the, I suppose the lesson for the father is, to her credit, that she did have a, a difficult background uh, in, 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 her, in her childhood because of the split. But she's come out of it, you know, pretty strong and tough and, and appears to be very well balanced. As you were going through social media last night, you will be well aware that one of the big criticisms was a decision by the Sunday Independent to publish a photograph of her with her husband and two children from 2009. Mm. Now, this was some people were making a big issue. This is an invasion of the children's privacy, blah, blah. Although I reckon they must be 
probably adults at this stage. Yeah, well, they? I mean, 2009, they, they, they would be... The first one was born in... Oh, I, can't, I can't remember. But they'd be, they'd be virtually adults. Or, and also, I think it yeah. also was suggested that she posed for photographs with her family at that time, at that election. Well, let me... Let me those photographs uh, were taken by an agency. She, she had her photograph. Those photographs were taken at a, bo- at a vote. Uh, at, that was the 2009 uh, European election. And they were, they were taken at a vote. She was, I think, pretty well aware when she was going to the polling booth and brought her children there and her husband there that she was going to be photographed with them. Because that's, because that's what happens. You're in a public place when you come out of the polling booth uh, and politicians get photographed. Yeah. And if they're their family with them, the family gets photographed with them. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's be honest about it. There are two sides to it for politicians. I know what it's like. It's an advantage very often to have to be photographed with your children or grandchildren or whatever it is. It, it's kind of me. It humanises you. I think that's probably... You know, there were several photographs taken at that time by the photographer, and she was there, I think, posing. I, maybe unfair, but it looks like she's posing for them. But, yeah, I mean, and the other... But, but let me answer that criticism in another, in another way, if you don't mind. I don't think she'd make that criticism herself, because there's a photograph of her, which was in Unpublic, in 2013 at Bodenstown. Right? And that was with her, with her husband, and with her two children. And that photograph was taken, and I thought, I asked them for it, I asked them public for it, for the, for the book, they wouldn't give it to me. But that photograph was saying 2013, she knowingly was photographed that day. She had her two children, you can look it up in the public. She had her husband with her. That was actually published in their, in their own organ, obviously with her approval, you know, she, at that stage. So I don't think she would be worried about that in, partic- in particular. She keeps them private most of the time, but not all the time. Okay, and of course, in that period, she had lost her seat. I think there's some surprise in 2009, the European Parliament elections, because she had swept home in 2004 unexpectedly, mm-hmm. lost her seat in 2009. What did you discover about where her political future lay at that stage? Was she regarded as being a busted flush, or was the party feel that temporary setback, we can get her back into the toilet in 2011 and rebuild Mary Lou MacDonald's career? They stuck by her. It was the most extraordinary situation. Yeah, you, you see, you're right. I mean, the the big blow was uh, not getting it, not getting into the Doyle the first time, and that was quite a quite a reverse. That uh, was in 2007. That's correct. And Bertie Ahern effectively, yeah, did a brilliant job on getting Cyprian Brady elected at Mary Lou's expense. It was classic, Bertie. It was just brilliant um, in in terms of electoral strategy. You know, he got Cyprian Brady in, who got I think 900 votes to start with. And he actually, Bertie's transfer got him in way above Mary Lou MacDonald and others. Uh, and she, she, she was kind of screwed uh, at, that st- at that stage. Um, but she still was in the European Parliament. And then, they, then there was a by-election, which was very inconvenient for her. Tony Gregory died in the constituency. She wasn't going to win that by-election. There was no chance of Sinn Féin winning that by-election. So they put up Christy Burke instead. And he was a bit of a fall guy, unfortunately, for him. And she then lost her seat in Europe in 2009. And that was a bit of a crisis for her. She was a person who was favoured by the hierarchy, by Adams and McGuinness, but who had no mandate, no electoral mandate.
So Shane Ross, she's out of office when she loses the 2009 European elections. So what, where was her position in Sinn Féin at that stage? I mean, did they consider ditching her? I think so. There were murmurings in the ranks, but she always had the support of Adams. And if you had the support of Adams in Sinn Féin at that time, and nearly at all times, you were safe. She'd lost election, uh, an important election, lost it fairly badly. She then lost the European election. And Adams did something quite interesting after moving, her losing the European election. He got, a, he got a, elected, well, there was no opposition, of course, uh, as vice president of Sinn Féin before she had to face the electorate again, when she was out in the wilderness at that time. And that really reinforced, that was a message to the troops. We still back you. We still think you're the answer. Uh, and so she was then in a situation where she was vice president, Sinn Féin, unopposed, uh, as always, as happened to all her positions. But why was she anointed? Did you get to the bottom of that as why she found favour? Why the northern command mm. of Sinn Féin mm. decided that this woman, who does not have an IRA background, mm -hmm. is an appropriate person for us to bring forward to a position of such prominence? Okay, I think, I think what happened here was that Adams made a decision very, very early on, possibly as early as 2002, 2003, that this was, this was the image Sinn Féin wanted. That this was, you know, he was, he was at that stage officially converted to the ballot box. He wanted to win seats. He, he dropped the gun in 1998, basically the support for the gun. She was the actual personification of what they needed to win seats down here. This was, this was the middle-class Dublin woman who was acceptable in the South. Now, why did they accept her in the North? Well, I think, I think the answer to that is this. They didn't accept her to start with. They tolerated her. They found her a bit of a curiosity. Uh, but they didn't buy in officially to the Adams vision because they weren't asked to at that stage. But he had this plan that she was, she was what he wanted as a successor in his new image. It worked in terms of the European election, which was lucky for him, the first European election. They won. So she was then, she was then promoted all along with the support of Adams and McGuinness internally within the party. In other words, she became chairman in 2000. She came on the Art Cola in 2001. She'd only just joined the party without opposition. She became in 2005 chairman of the party, chairperson. She came in 2009, vice president of the party. No election. Again, no opposition. They don't do opposition really in Sinn Féin still, as you can see. Uh, so she was backed all that way. Now, all that period of time, and this is very interesting, and it, it's... It went on right up to 2018 until she was elected. She was working the circuit, the way kind of Charlie Hoy did the, you know, the chicken, chicken, chicken circuit. Um, she was working the circuit in Northern Ireland. She was making herself known there. She was accompanying Adams virtually everywhere he was, particularly on his successful elections. And she was breaking down what was resistance, particularly amongst the hard men, to her. And she worked that throughout that period, uh, she was kind of, she got vague jobs within Sinn Féin, kind of coordinating North and South, that sort of thing, which she, which she was doing to get herself into, into, into the, really into the, in favour with, with, uh, with Northern Ireland, with the Northern Ireland's uh, Sinn Féin. And then she, up to, right up to 2018, she worked the memorials, the commemorations. This was, this was her real passport to getting, getting in favour up there. 
And she worked them weekends. She went up and she did commemoration, commemoration dinners, commemoration memorials, anything like that. And carried a lot of coffins. A, a lot. She carried a lot of coffins. I mean, one of the things she had to do was, or she felt she had to do, I mean, it started, I think, in about 2004 when Joe Cahill died. And there's a photograph of that in the book and, uh, and a description of the funeral. She went to that funeral. She, she was very young at that stage. She was just, you know, just elected the European Parliament. But, and she carried that coffin. And uh, then she was carrying a lot of other coffins. She carried Brian, Brian Keenan's coffin, coffin later on. The one on the she, cover of the book, whose coffin is that one? That's Michelle Herneal, Jerry Adams and herself. That's, and that's the uh, Martin McGuinness's funeral. And that's, uh, I was at that actually. And she, yeah, she was very prominent at that, at that funeral as well, that was in Derry. Uh, and she did the circuit of commemorations up there, commemorating people who were not the most savoury of, of records, but she realised, quite obviously, that she had to do this to, not to ingratiate herself, but to become acceptable to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to, to the, what they call the, the volunteers. I mean, there's one, there's one photograph, which unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't come out well enough, but it but it's accessible on the net. There's a photograph of her, which I think is very telling, addressing a dairy um, dinner. It was dairy volunteers dinner in 2016. And there she is standing at a, at a lectern. And in front of the lectern is this, this, this very obvious uh, drawing of armalites. And she's standing there and the armalites are right in front of her on the, on the, on the, on the, on the lectern. And she did that. And she, she spoke to all these volunteers. She did the commemorations. She did the IRA commemorations all over Northern Ireland. She went to South Armagh, Tyrone, all those places, because that was her road to the leadership, obviously with, with the approval of Adams and McGuinness. There's an awful lot of potential Sinn Féin voters who I think are looking to Sinn Féin to sort out economic issues such as housing, mm. which I'm sure is important to her. But the impression that I've formed from conversations with her is that the single most important thing to her, if she was to get office, is a united Ireland. Mm. Would you agree? I would. I think that uh, the rest has all, always been kind of subsidiary. I think the united Ireland was, is the one, is the sabre she rattles all the time. She, she pays lip service to other things like that, socialism. You don't hear her using the, the S word very much, uh, if at all. I think it's, it's kind of... Has she ever spoken about a socialist republic like the way that others in Sinn Féin in the past would have? No, but if you ask her if she's a socialist, she'll tell you she is. But so did Buddy Ahern and a few other, a few other people. Uh, no, I don't. I, I think she's... There was one guy, uh, Killian Ford, who said in, in his... In, in, when I interviewed him, he was one of her assistants and, uh, for Europe. Uh, sorry, he was a political assistant for Europe. He, he said she was an equalitist. She kind of... Believed in equality, certainly, and uh, but the the big thing was the United Ireland. She obviously, you know, she was she's a feminist, but she's she's those credentials I think came to her late because of the view of Sinn Féin on abortion, which which changed, and she had to go along with the traditional view for a lot was silent on it. So I think her her commitment is very definitely it's kind of visceral to a uni, to a United Ireland, and the rest goes along with it. But I don't think that was the reason that she came to politics. Do you think will people in the north warm to her as Taoiseach if she does use her position to promote a united Ireland? Yeah, I do. I think even uh, think unionists will warm to her. No, no, not at all. But I think that the, the the group up there will certainly. I mean, she, the the, the nationalist group, with sorry, will, will will warm to her. And one of the things that I think 
I could conclude at the end of this is that as it stands now, she is seen very favorably by the nationalists in the North. She's won that battle. Um, I did quite a lot of work on that. And I went into, you know, hardline areas in Andersonstown. It's all in there. And in Andersonstown, the Felons Club in Belfast. And I asked about her. I didn't even did, did a vox pop in, in the, in the uh, Kennedy Center in Belfast, Belfast uh, asking people what they thought of Mary Lou. And the extraordinary thing was, the more militant Republican area, like the Andersonstown Ex-Prisoners Club, which I went into, and I asked them, I just went, walked in and I, and I asked permission, and I asked, could I talk to the guys in there? It was on the 12th of July of all days, which was probably an inappropriate day, and I asked them what they thought of Mary Lou, but and I was kind of looking just for variety, for them to say, no, no, she's not one of ours. They didn't. They said, we like her. She's great. They, she's the only one who stands up for us down there. It was extraordinary. What sort of response did you get from people, though, when you were asking all of these mm. questions? Did anyone at any stage try to warn you off? Did you at any stage feel no. intimidated? No, it was... It was I, I felt kind of scared before I went into the Felons Club for the first time. I thought it, was, it might be awkward. Um, and I went in there for... I went in there to have lunch, and there was no lunch that day, but I, I stayed there for, for drinks, etc. No, not at all. The, they were... I got a tour around from a guy called Jerry Scullion, who's a, an ex-prisoner. Very polite, very nice, very humorous. He, he gave me a tour at Fellows Club and I stayed there for a while, etc. And when I went into, and they, I talked to a lot of the other people who were there, and no, they don't. some of them were very welcoming. Others just wanted to talk and tell me that they liked Mary Lou. They were quite keen to do that. Um, when I went into Anderson Shopping Centre, it wasn't completely unanimous behind her. Some, one or two people said, I think one person, I remember saying, you know, we don't like her because of her stand on abortion, which is obviously there was a split in the Sinn Féin about that, and there probably still is. Most of them went. And then I went, then I went into the um, Andersonstown prisoners, ex-prisoners club, and, sorry, not ex-prisoners, prisoners dependents, it's called PD. Um, and they didn't know. I asked permission, I just dropped the door, and I said, can I come in? And they said, okay. And I, and I went in and they, no, nobody intimidated me at all. They were quite, they were quite funny. They were quite amusing about, you and know. what did they make of you? Because <laughs> I, I wonder how many of them actually knew you to be a former minister in the government here in the Republic yeah. and also as a newspaper columnist. And I, I think maybe we touched this note, a bit of a shit stirrer at times <laughs> as well. So yeah. what did they make of this guy coming in, asking these questions in the, in the rather plummy accent that they might associate <laughs> from the South either? They, they kind of, they, they, I was kind of careful about the language. I used, you know, you don't talk about Northern Ireland Republican clubs and you don't talk about the, the, the South and when you're talking to unionists if you want to, to, to let them know that you understand the nuances. They were, they were, they were nice. I mean, they were, they'd have known that probably just from the way I talked that I wasn't from their background. I think they might have guessed that. <laughs> uh, but they were, they were, I remember one of them congratulating me, actually, but he said, you got it right. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, you're talking about the South, not the Republic. That's good. That's what you're doing here. You know, but he was being pleasant about it. They were, they were fine. They were, they were actually very friendly. I, uh, the kind of fear which I had before I went in, because, you know, there were some pretty horrible things that happened outside that, around that club. I mean, people were killed. And uh, they were fine, and they were just having a... It was, it was bank holiday in, in, uh, in Northern Ireland that day, because it's... Uh, you know, it was the 12th. 
and they were they were having good they were in good form. They, they, they were very very welcoming, not hostile at all. See, Shane, you were a senator for many yeah. years before you became a TD in 2011 yeah. and became a government minister. And I think you would have been also from your writings in the Sunday Independent would have been a very outspoken opponent of the IRA mm. and the activities yeah. that it engaged in. So what's your own journey in relation to Sinn Féin as the political arm mm. of the IRA? Mm. And has any bias of that crept into what you've written about Mary Lou MacDonald? I think I'd leave that for other people to judge, but I think... Well, were you checking record... yourself when you were actually writing well, for bias? Well, I, I still have a, a strong distaste for the IRA and all it did. Uh, but I do accept... You have to accept the fact. And I accept it very willingly. And I've always had a very good relationship with Sinn Féin in the last 10, 20 years. Very peculiar one. I mean, I, I, I accept that they're elected representatives and that's it. I mightn't like what they stood for and, and what they stand for now, but I, you know, but I accept that. So that's okay. But I've had, on a personal level, it's always been a good relationship with Mary Lou, although we wouldn't agree about lots of things. Uh, and with and with the others and when I when I was in um, when I was in the uh, Ministry of Transport, my relationship with them when they were in opposition was extraordinarily good, far better. I'd say it, you had a better relationship than end, which you had with many members of your own government. Yeah, I did. <laughs> There's no doubt, and it 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 really got up the noses of my colleagues in cabinet because I was receiving delegations from Sinn Fein all the time, and quite a lot of them didn't didn't do it and wouldn't do it. At any stage, they wouldn't listen to T- Sinn Féin TDs. And they were very supportive of the reforms I introduced on, on drink driving, which was more than can be said for my Finnegan, a lot of my Finnegan colleagues. Uh, they were very supportive as well. And I couldn't have done it without them. I couldn't have done that without them. And I couldn't have got as far as we did on the judicial reform without them. And I was talking to them about it regularly, about how to get this through. And okay, we were doing various deals on things, but. And, and so I, I developed an extremely good relationship with them. And so I, my own prejudices, which were undoubtedly there to start with, were lost, I think. But yeah, sure, when, when, I, got to, when I got in the book to the, to the parts about uh, going around the commemorations, I, I would have preferred she didn't did do that because she was commemorating some people who I thought were pretty awful, actually. Yeah. Do you miss being a minister? Not now. How long did it take you to get over losing your seat? Ah. But more than that, losing your ministerial position. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was a bit of a... No, I don't miss being a minister because I never expect to be a minister again. You know, I was kind of lucky that I got it. The numbers got right and, and they couldn't do anything but make me a minister. At the end. I didn't have to do anything very much, really, because the numbers were just right. Uh, and I never expect to be that again. I knew it was over once, once the election was called. Um, I, I sometimes miss the companionship of being a TD, uh, and I miss meeting people. You know, the, the funny thing is, as a TD, you meet a 
you meet lots of people every single day and you go around complaining about what your life is and you've got to do all these things that, that, that aren't anything to do with politics, etc. But you miss the kind of community thing of meeting people day and night and being, you know, you get pestered and you miss being pestered. You know, you complain about it when it's happening, but you miss it and so on. You miss that a bit, but no, I, I mean, life, I don't miss it anymore at all, actually. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I don't, th if someone offered me a ministry tomorrow, I don't think I'd take it, to be honest. I mentioned that you used to be a bit of a shit star, yeah. particularly in your time as business editor at the Sunday Independent. Yeah. From your time then on the other side, when yeah. you were the poacher turned gamekeeper, yeah. did you come to have more understanding perhaps of the difficulties of getting things done yeah. as a minister? Yeah, you get the frustration of, of it. And you've, you know, you think things, I mean, there are all sorts of things which I would have liked to have done. You know, there was kind of, I thought, Right, let's, I'm going to be Minister of Transport. Let's, what's a big reform I'd like to do? I'd love to have done, introduced uh, competition to the airport, you know, third terminal. And the frustration of that was incredible. What stopped you? Basically, that they, um, well, the civil servants stopped me at the end, at the end of the day, if I'm, if I'm kind of honest about it. I remember saying on, almost on day one, right, let's get moving on this. And they said, uh, the first thing, the civil servant said was, are you sure you have the support of your ministerial colleagues for this? Which was an indication that if you really want to go ahead with this absolute madness of introducing competition at the airport, having another terminal, we'll talk to, this is how I read it, I mean, we'll talk to the civil servants in, say, Pascal Donahue's constituency, uh, in, yeah, in Pascal Donahue's department, and they'll put him right about what's going on and what you're up to. And he, that's his constituency, and he's the money bags, and you think you can get through all that? Forget about it. And then, you know, there was a report, and there was there had to be a big report issued to see the viability of it, etc., which took much longer than expected. It kept being... And you could see manipulated delays happening in various things all the time. There's a structure there which hinders you from doing things like that and it's very difficult to overcome it now we were getting we were getting close to it but you know time time is what stops you i suppose time and the civil servants because that strikes me then as a minister you have wider responsibilities outside of your own department and yeah. input a cabinet the great crisis facing this country and has been for a number of years now is housing yeah so why wasn't that given a greater priority by the government of which you were part I think that's. I think we're all to blame for that. I think that's that's the responsibility which I have to share reluctantly. I mean, people say it wasn't your department, but still, it was. You're there, and you can do it. And we didn't do enough for it. There was, a, I suppose, what we've learned. We were told there were financial, you know, restrictions on it and couldn't be done. And I think we're all at fault about this because it was immediately became apparent to us the moment COVID broke that there was money there. For emergencies and that's you know that is that is my fault and anybody else's fault as well if there were money there for covid and there's money there now for cost of living we could if it was such an urgent problem have gone out and just said we're borrowing it and to hell with it and we didn't we did we we worked within those very prudent structures and there's a lot to be said for that it's a very good principle indeed but it's a matter of priority if you say okay we we don't have the money to build the you know, 30,000 houses a year that, that, that are necessary. So we can't do it, we have to do it gradually. We could have said, to hell with that, this matters, we're going to go and borrow it because we, 
we, when COVID came, when COVID arrived, all bets were off. And we didn't place housing as as big an emergency or priority as it probably should have been. Do you think could Mary Lou MacDonald and Owen O'Brien and Sinn Féin solve the housing crisis? Because that is going to be the main plank, I suspect, on which they'll run for election, even if, as we've already alluded to, yeah. Mary Lou MacDonald's real interest may be in using power to achieve a united Ireland. Yeah, I think, I think you know, it'll be much harder than they're making out. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to be a matter of just building, you know, going <laughs> writing checks and the, in the morning, ordering this, that, and the other. There are all sorts of problems about supply and demand, and the materials and the costs, and the building costs, which may, may simply not fit in with with uh, econo- economic supply, economic ability to pay. But do I think she? Do you think she's as determined? I think she's probably focused on the United Ireland, but she realizes the absolute necessity of delivering on what she's promised at that, this stage. She's, she's put herself, but all oppositions do do this. We did in opposition as well. She's put herself on a bit of a hook, uh, but it's not a hook which she is incapable of getting out of either. You know, that's, that's unfortunately the nature of things. Do you want to live in her united Ireland? I'm quite happy to live in a united island. I'm not sure what her united island actually is. I mean, I think, I think that, the key to this is such a cliche, but nobody addresses it. And that is, you can't do it without consent. And you can't do it without the consent of the people who, let's be honest, are regarded by most politicians here as being obstinate, awkward and difficult and an obstacle to United Ireland. Uh, and it has got to be done with the agreement of those who are now absolutely opposed to it. It cannot work without that. But you come from a tradition and background here in the South or the Republic yeah. that many unionists would say couldn't thrive in the South and Republic, and yet you have. I mean, is the Republic a welcoming place for Protestants now in the way that it wouldn't have been a century ago? I don't think that's quite a fair comparison because, <clears throat> yeah, I've never had any problems at all. Being you thrived. Protestant. You've yeah, had a great time. That's right. <laughs> I, no, but being a Protestant in in a, in 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 the Republic of Ireland or the South, which I like to call, no, I've, I've never found that an obstacle in any way. Or, I don't think it's a plus or a minus, to be honest. I, at this stage, or I don't think it ever really was very much. But that's different because Protestants here aren't a threat. That there are so few, really, that or they weren't when I was a child a threat either at that stage. So that no one's going to actually resist them. If you, take, if you take a United Ireland and you have a larger, much larger percentage of people who resist this structure or the constitution which is imposed upon them, you have a real difficulty. I'm going to finish by asking you a personal question. And if you don't want to answer it, don't answer it. But yeah. I've got to know you through your friendship yeah. with Eamon Dunphy. Yeah. And we would have been on the radio together on many occasions when Eamon, my predecessor at The Last Word, would have brought the two of us on together on many occasions and financial issues and things like the toll bridge out in the M50 and whatever. And you were great friends and you were best man at his wedding. And becoming a minister seems to have cost you your friendship. (laughs) How much regret is there about that, given that you were exceptionally close and you'd great fun together? Yeah, I'm really sorry about it. I mean, I mean, I did, it's, it's, I mean, the, the breach is probably as much my fault as his. I don't know, really. I didn't do things as a minister he wanted me to do and he got really upset about What did he about. expect you to do as a minister? I'm not sure. I don't, I, you know, I don't really, I don't really, 
quite understand it. He, he got very cross. I think he got very cross because, oh yeah, because I wouldn't, the, the, the crux of it was, and I think I'd had dinner with him a few nights earlier, but it rather surprised me. He got very cross on some program and because I hadn't given in to the strikers on, on uh, uh, bus strikers on, on uh, I think it was a bus striker, yeah, uh, on something, on, on, a, on uh, when I was Minister for Transport in the early days. We was, uh, anyway, the rights and wrongs of that don't really matter. But he got very, very annoyed about it. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm afraid I didn't give in to them, even despite that came and got annoyed that he expected me to. And it just kind of escalated a bit from then and it, it got a bit public on his part. You know, which was fine, but uh, I was somewhat, I was somewhat surprised at 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 the personal nature of the attacks more than he else. But uh, you know, I'd be very happy to to uh, to to be friends with him again. But I don't think he wants to be friends with me at this stage. That's because that's I, could, I could only imagine you having a great conversation on his podcast, The Stand, yeah. about this book, and I'm sure yeah. he'd be forensic yeah, yeah. in examining you and challenging yeah. you oh, about sure. it. Yeah, but I'd say you'd enjoy it almost. I, I, I would. Yeah. I mean, it was. I suppose these things happen. I mean. Both of us aren't the easiest people to deal with. And, and we both fall out with people all the time. I suppose it was inevitable, even after 30 or 40, 40 years probably of friendship, that at some stage we'd fall out because we both fall out with everybody at some stage. So it was, but I, it's kind of gone on for quite a long time now. Do you make up with people? Did you ever make up with Ender Kenny? Yeah, totally. Ender uh, and, and I got on <coughs> really well. Sorry, <coughs> really well at the end. I mean, absolutely. And, and uh, I was one of his... Greatest advocates as he was sinking, uh, and uh, which he won't have thanked me for saying, but I was, yeah. And, uh, and whereas the in retrospect, did that government suffer from his premature department, or was a departure, or was it time for him to go? I hadn't thought about that. I, it was so inevitable that he was going to go all along. Uh, it was just a matter of time. He was, he was a totally different kettle of fish to deal with than uh, than Leo. Um, I mean, there was friction all the time. Ender would deal with the friction with, with say, Finian McGrath and me by confronting it immediately. You know, he was, no, and we'd have a row. I mean, we need, the government nearly fell in the first week as a result of that. There was no compromise for a while. And it was either win or lose. Whereas Leo's much more kind of compromising. He'd negotiate with you. He'd tell you this is the, that and the other. Ender would expect you to do what he's told, even though a different group. Um, so it was different style. I don't know. I don't know. But 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 no, we got on very well in the end because because uh, we 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 reached a kind of accommodation which was far far better. And Anders is very engaging. You know, he's very amusing, as you know, and he's he's good fun. And if you settle down with him for a pint, which I don't, but if, for that, he's 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 he'll 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 come to a compromise quite quite quickly in that sense. Yeah. So you've ruled out returning to politics. So that means your no intention or ambition of serving as a minister in a Mary Lou Macdonald-led government. I don't see the offer coming in my direction. (laughs) 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 The light of the book, no. (laughs) A Republican riddle. Mary Lou Macdonald is the book by Shane Ross. Shane, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here at the Magnified Podcast. Thank you very much indeed. And so that was Shane Ross in the latest edition of the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast series. If you enjoyed it, please share it with friends give it a good recommendation and there are loads of others in the series well over 20 at this stage from you can pick from if you haven't listened to and you might get some very enjoyable discussions to listen to there so until the next time from me matt cooper thank you very much for joining us on the latest magnified podcast